Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So the smith lit a fire in front of the bed. What is this for, asks the supposed boy. You will see presently, says the smith. And he took him up and threw him into the middle of it. And the changeling gave an awful yell and flew up through the roof. Welcome to Strange Familiars, covering a range of topics from the paranormal. Cryptids, mythology, the occult, hauntings, UFOs, weird history, and folklore. Wherever you are listening to Strange Familiars, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or any other service, please subscribe and click the like button, and share the Strange Familiars pages and stories on Facebook and other social media. If you have experienced something strange, or if you know a story you would like us to cover, email strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. And of course you can always find us at strangefamiliars.com. Welcome to episode 11, Iron and the Supernatural Part 2, The Blacksmith. If you've been enjoying Strange Familiars and you're interested in getting extra shows, check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. You can really help us out by uh, contributing just $3 a month. You get extra shows. Or if you can contribute more, there's different reward levels for t-shirts and stickers, pins, and the like. It helps us continue to make Strange Familiars, and you get some extras as well. Go ahead and check out patreon.com slash strangefamiliars, and of course, thanks to our current patrons. So, I shortened the intro music up a little bit this time. Hopefully, it still retains the mood. Some people were complaining about the length of the intro, so hopefully this will shorten it up a little bit. I'll probably alternate this with the full version here and there. Speaking of listener feedback, I did receive a few emails regarding my conversation with Joshua Cutchin last episode when we talked about Bigfoot creatures eating dirt, and I was kind of making jokes about that. A few folks emailed and pointed out things like pica and geophagia, and the fact that mammals, primates, and even humans sometimes do eat dirt. I should have thought about that 
So yes, it does happen in animals, humans, primates, and I do stand corrected. However, I don't think that this would account for the quantity of Bigfoot sightings near and around iron forges, but perhaps I'm wrong. So tonight's show is our second show on iron. We might return to it at some point in the future. This show, we're going to look at legends and lore of the blacksmith, who is, of course, intimately connected with iron. We're going to be talking with an author and powwow practitioner who also happens to be a blacksmith, Cody Dickerson. Now, Cody and I cover a lot of ground, so let's just jump right into our talk. talking with Cody Dickerson today and Cody's the author of a book. I do this a lot. He's the author of a book that we're going to really not cover today. <laughs> but we'll have to have you back on to cover the, uh your book which is called The Language of the Corpse and that is on Three Hands Press. It's an excellent book. You want to just kind of briefly describe your book? Um yeah, you know that it's, it's a it's a pretty slim little thing but it's it started out as as an essay and just kind of grew into a very large essay and eventually became a small book. But, you know, the idea behind writing that, I think, was kind of illustrate some of the places historically in the North and in the West where folks had attempted to harness the power of the dead in terms, you know, by by way of their physical remains. And so, you know, I was seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of common threads in some of the folklore and, and even back into ancient religious practices that that sort of surrounded the idea that physical remains, human or animal, and, and the, the book focuses a lot on human human remains as a source of magical power. So whether it was for healing or cursing or uh, and, and, you know, any manner of things in between, it was really interesting to kind of, you know, have all of that information in one place. The book has a really strong focus on some of the Icelandic material, which is kind of remained in, fairly intact compared to a lot of other material because of its late conversion to Christianity. So it really maintains a lot of the pagan characteristics. I was uh, not terribly familiar with that, but uh, I looked into it a little bit after reading your book. And even when they were you know, converted, they, they were just so separate in Iceland that so much just got preserved, so much of, of you know, the old religion. They were literally just separate from the rest Fairly. of Europe, so. Yeah, yeah, it was really insular, you know, there was, and it gave, you know, it gave it an opportunity to kind of develop along with Europe at a much slower rate in terms of conversion, and it, it never really seemed like it didn't quite take as strongly as it did in continental Europe, but, you know, even, and that was, you know, one of the curious things is even, you know, beyond conversion, those ideas still remained, you know, and even into the ideas of like the saints relic and things like that, like those ideas never really went away and, and continued to be parts and pieces of, of the cadaver continued to be kind of maintained this holy status as some sort of a vessel of, of power for people to access. Whether again, it was readily available for common, common people in a, in a time where death was a lot closer to life, you know, as opposed to now where it's sort of, feels a lot more sterilized and kind of pushed aside as being this, you know, scary, dirty thing. It seems like historically 
death played a much more significant role in the lives of of people. And so, you know, it was, it was a great source of power. In general, it was... Um... We, we've lost the impact of that in the same way I think we, we've lost the impact of the seasons in a lot of ways. I mean, we, we used to just live so intimately with the earth that the seasons really, you know, had an impact on our life. And they just don't as much anymore. They certainly do, but uh, as, but yeah. but nowhere near to, yep. to the then, level they did. It's true. It's, it's really true, you know, and that, you know, living close to the seasons, it tends to really feed into this idea of a, a sort of a, ma- a magical view of life, you know, and, 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 and timing is everything. And, and this cyclical nature is, you know, really feeds, it really feeds spiritual and religious processes in a, in a big way. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, ha- having kind of lost that and this, and this connection, you know, with, with the necessity of death and in, in terms of, you know, even putting food on the table, um, this disconnection that's occurred is, it's really unfortunate, you know, because in, in many other parts of the world, this it's very much still a reality. And in the West, we've really lost that. And, and it's, I think, has really negative consequences on, on the, on the psyche of, of people, you know, and we've, we've just lost that. And, and as, as, you know, many other aspects of, of life too, you know? Sure. Yeah. And now this is another show. So before we get too deep into this, because I do want to revisit yeah. this with you at some point. Let's yeah. shift gears here. Cody, you're also okay. a blacksmith. I am. Yes, sir. <laughs> I've been describing you to my friends as kind of a uh, uh, blacksmith who makes uh, ritual and, and magical implements. And in other words, you're not just banging out horseshoes. You make some, <laughs> make some really interesting stuff. So people can find you most easily at your Etsy shop? Um. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it, you know, through that site, I have a few items on there for sale that I manufacture pretty regularly. And uh, I'd say the lion's share of the work that I do and really, really enjoy is the commissioned work that I get through that site. But yeah, I could, um, I can be contacted there. And if folks are interested in commissioned work that is real specific and particular to something that, you know, that they require, that's a, that's a great way to get a hold of me. I'll link it, the Etsy shop in the notes, but what's the Etsy shop? The name is Borealis Ironworks. Okay, so people can, and, can uh, look you up on Etsy, yeah. and but I'll I'll link that in the notes as well. So, what made you, oh, well, thank you. Thank uh, you. start working with iron? It started back right before I graduated high school, and in trying to consider what I was going to do with the rest of my life, and I'd always been kind of drawn to that line of work. My grandfather was a welder and a machinist for his entire career, and so I was kind of exposed to it that way. And we lived in a really rural area, and so he worked at a steel mill, and then on the side at home he had a he had a welding shop and a machine shop set up there, and he worked, he did a lot of work for farmers and ranchers in the area um, in his off time, and so that was always something that was around, you know, the smell of iron and grease, you know, at their place, and and just you know I went out on a few jobs with him, and it was really it was always really fascinating to me, and so. Um, I decided to, you know, I attended a vocational school to get welding certifications and, and kind of learned, learned it that way. And so I started into that right, right away, um, working in, in metalwork and fabrication. And when I was about, so it was about 20 or 21, I went to work in a shop as a welder, but um, this particular shop, they did ornamental lighting and furniture. 
And so a portion of that shop was dedicated to blacksmith work. And so that's where I learned, initially learned how to, how to do blacksmithing. And it, a lot of kind of, a lot of disparate, seemingly disparate threads came together for me at that, at that point in my life in my early 20s. I became involved in uh, Freemasonry, and that was my introduction to the lore surrounding Tubal Cain and and this sort of these ideas of the divine Smith. And um, the rest after that was kind of history. You know, I, I uh, I've been doing metal work for almost 20 years now, and blacksmithing work up until the last year or two was uh, I was kind of doing it as an aside, you know, as a hobby, and now. Um, essentially doing it full-time between between manufacturing and, and commission work as well as um, I do instruction as well. So folks come out here um, for, for various classes that I teach. And so doing it now full-time is really very rewarding, <laughs> and I really enjoy it a lot. You know, and doing some of the research in folklore and ancient religion and a lot of the things that surround that whole field of, of work, it's really just absolutely fascinating to me. And it's really feels good to, you know, to be a part of that, to step into that stream as a practitioner too, you know, it feels, feels really, really rewarding. You actually got into it before you really dug into the, the sort of folklore that went along with it. Yeah. 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 Which is really strange. You know, I, I've been a student of, of Germanic mysticism and religion for, you know, a long time, you know, since I was, you know, my late teens. And um, it all kind of, it all kind of just came together for me, you know, and lined up and it was just like a fish to water. It kind of <laughs> just made sense for me and it feels really good. Oh, yeah. For those who don't know, the the blacksmith is the world over. I mean, just, just connected to the supernatural in pretty much any culture where there's iron, the blacksmith goes, uh, I mean, they're known as, as, uh, creators that they're making something from nothing. I think that that's probably the genesis of all of it. If I had to guess, you, you think that's probably, uh, where it begins. Uh, yeah. But I mean, there's, you know, there's a, there's a Yaku saying from, uh, from Siberia that the Smiths and the shamans are from the same net. Um, and I, and I think that that really kind of sums up a pretty, pretty broad cross-cultural uh, perspective on smithing. And yeah, I think in earlier times, um, you know, prior to the industrialized production of steel and iron, it was an extremely, and it still is a specialized field for sure, but I mean, it was extremely specialized in those times. And to folks who weren't trained, you know, and, and again, and, and the, the training occurred in a, you know, in a guild type situation. So a lot of that information and knowledge was protected. So to folks who didn't know what was going on there, you know, I, I can only imagine how that must have seemed felt. You know, the blacksmith has always kind of been this liminal character that stands between two worlds as a, as a shamanic figure and as a figure who, and you see it reflected a lot in some of the tales and the folklore around the, around the globe is that, you know, this, this idea of the, the blacksmith having made some manner of contact or a pact or an exchange or something with some other numinous figure, you know, and a lot of times it was kind of dubious. There's a theory out there that the tale of the blacksmith and the devil is actually one of the oldest themes um, that, that, that has remained intact up until, up until the present, you know, that's, um, this that's... idea of the smith. 
if you've seen the image of of the uh, the fellow with the tongs holding the devil by the nose, that's Saint Dunstan. That's the most popular version of that tale. It's not the oldest, but it's it's probably the one that people yeah. have seen seen the most. It, um, just just a note right. for people. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So Saint Dunstan, like tenth century, and there are several stories surrounding you know the struggle between Saint Dunstan and the devil. And one of the stories has really been ascribed to the initial chunks of horseshoe lore and the horseshoe being a protective amulet. Um, you know, it's the, the story of St. Dunstan, uh, you know, in his, in his forge working away and uh, this beautiful woman strolls into the shop and is watching him work. And, and he notices this kind of strange behavior from this, this character out the corner of his eye. And, and, and the character is, she has a limp and is walking strange and he recognizes soon that, that it's in fact the devil and so he offers to manufacture a new shoe for this woman, and which is the devil in disguise, you know. So of course she she says, "Sure, you know." And he he goes to shoe and notices the cloven feet, and so he gets the shoe extra hot and pounds it on extra strong. And the devil's screaming and yelling, you know, oh, "God, get it off my foot!" You know, and uh, he says, I'll, "I'll make you a deal. I'll, I'll take it off of your foot if you promise never to." bring strife and difficulty to a home that's protected by the horseshoe. And so that's one of those early stories that surrounds um, the, you know, the protective power of, of the horseshoe. It kind of comes down from, from St. Dunstan. Although I'm sure just the fact that it's made out of iron makes it sort of an amuletic or, you know, protective amulet in and of, its, of itself. And so that's one really interesting story about St. Dunstan too. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so many variants, and and uh, a lot of them go back, you know, well before St. Dunstan. You can find the, you know, these the same tale. It's just been kind of transferred to St. Dunstan. Sure. A oh, lot of cultures they they were they were so suspicious of the blacksmith. I mean, they they held him in reverence, but they were suspicious of him, and they would uh, have the blacksmith live outside the village, even. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's that's still the case. You know, in, in Africa, for example, um, you know, the Congolese blacksmiths aren't the forge has to be set up far away from from town you know because of the amount of sorcerous power that's attributed to the smith and and the place that they were um it's really you know it's sort of this vortex of power that folks don't understand you know it's pretty it's i even get to see a little bit of that when i'm doing instruction and teaching folks who've never never touched iron in that you know in that way and and having them come out and, and, you know, make a knife or, or a nail or whatever it is that they, that they make, you know, and, and just watching their faces as, as that material is transformed by their own hand. It's just really amazing. It's really beautiful to see, to see that awe that's still present in the eyes of, of folks who've never done it. And, and when they're watching it occur, it's, it's really magical, you know? And yeah. I mean, and again, you know, a lot of, a lot of that power, that's ascribed to the Smith is kind of considered a little bit on the dark side of things. That's why I think so often we see the Smith making deals with the devil or, you know, with the fairy folk and other, other assorted, you know, Kasonic deities that uh, have exchanged this knowledge, you know, and, and in, in the North in Scandinavia and continental Europe, you know, the idea of, of the dwarves, you know, these subterranean Kasonic um, entities that are teaching these, these skills to mankind have always had this sort of dubious reputation and that reputation carries over to the Smiths too. 
and sometimes again you encounter these these exchanges between you know humans and these other entities in terms of you know the exchange of knowledge of that craft there's a scottish story for example uh, where an old smith you know has a has a son who grows really ill and um, he goes to the local cunning man and, and he says you know i think you've got a changeling and so you need to throw him in the fire, which is just horrible. Throw, throw him in the fire, and if it's a changeling, you know, it'll, it'll fly through the roof and away screaming. And so he, he goes home and does just that. And, and sure enough, you know, it's a changeling, and out it goes. And, and so he returns to the cunning man and says, um, what, what do I need to do to get my son back? And he says, you know, you need to visit this, you know, particular fairy hill and uh, take with you, you know, a Bible, a knife, and a rooster, and the long story short is, is he goes and re- he retrieves his son from the fairies in this fairy hill. And while his son was in the fairy hill, he was taught the art of smithing. And he came, came back and he, told, he taught his dad all the tricks of the trade and, and off they went, you know, and had a wonderful life. Play right side. The Daily Journal, New Bern, North Carolina. May 18th, 1890. The Boy Who Was Carried Away by the Fairies In a little village in the highlands of Scotland, there lived a smith who had an only son, a large, healthy boy. All of a sudden he fell ill, took to his bed, and moped for days, getting thin, odd-looking, and yellow, and wasting away very fast, so that they thought he must die. Now a wise old man who knew all about fairies came to see the smith, and the poor man told him all his trouble. The old man said, It is not your son you have got. The boy has been carried away by the fairies, and they have left a changeling in his place. Then the old man told him what to do. Take as many eggshells as you can get. Go with them into his room, spread them out before him, then draw water with them, carrying them two and two in your hands, as if they were a great weight, and when they are full, range them around the fire. The smith did as he was told, and he had not been long at work before there came from the bed a great shout of laughter, and the supposed boy cried out, I am eight hundred years old, and I never saw the like of that before. Then the smith knew that it was not his own son. The wise man advised him again. Your son, said he, is in a green round hill where the fairies live. Get rid of this creature, and then go and look for him. So the smith lit a fire in front of the bed. What is this for? asked the supposed boy. You will see presently, said the smith, and he took him up and threw him into the middle of it, and the changeling gave an awful yell and flew up through the roof where a hole was left to let the smoke out. Now the wise old man said that on a certain night the green round hill where the fairies kept the boy would be open. The father was to take a Bible, a dirk, and a crowing cock and go there. He would hear singing and dancing and much merriment, but he was to go boldly in. The Bible would protect him against the fairies, and he was to stick the dirk into the threshold to keep the hill from closing upon him. Then he would see a grand room, and there, working at a forge, he would find his own son, and when the fairies questioned him, 
He was to say he had come for his boy and would not go away without him. So the smith went and did what the old man told him. He heard the music, found the hill open, went in, stuck the dirk in the threshold, carried the Bible on his breast, and took the crowing cock in his hand. Then the fairies angrily asked him what was wanted, and he said, I want my son, whom I see down there, and I will not go without him. Upon this the whole company of the fairies gave a loud laugh, which woke up the cock, and he leaped on the smith's shoulders, clapped his wings, and crowed lustily. Then the fairies took the smith and his son, put them out of the hill, flung the dirk after them, and the hillside closed up again. For a year and a day after he got home, the boy did no work and scarcely spoke a word, but at last, one day, sitting by his father and seeing him finish a sword for the chieftain, he suddenly said, That's not the way to do it. And he took the tools and fashioned a sword, the like of which was never seen in that country before, and from that day he worked and lived as usual. Tina mentioned, you know, that maybe the fairy folk or these other entities are upset because mankind is kind of cutting in on their grade, you know, that there's this, they don't like iron that's been worked by human hands. So it's mm. not an aversion to iron necessarily, you know, but iron that's been manipulated by, by human hands. And so I thought that was kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, and that works into this sort of iron versus cold iron, that they actually made a distinction between the two. Oh, right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you see cold iron mentioned a lot in folklore, you know, and the power of touching cold iron and and what what cold iron is versus um, uncold iron, you know, that, that <laughs> I've seen several different descriptions of that. And I think most commonly, well, a lot of times, at least in, you know, in the last several hundred years, you know, cold iron refers to some sort of weaponry. So, you know, a sword or a knife or shears, a scissors, some sort of a blade, um, you know, some some manner of iron that, that has this, this, you know, stabbing or cutting, uh, cutting capability. Um, but I know that that certainly wasn't the case all the time, that cold iron could have been any sort of manufactured iron, too, so, like a horseshoe or you know, any variety of things. That's interesting because uh, before I heard that on the, the uh, it was the Celtic Myth Pod show, I just thought it was, you know, just an adjective they threw in front of iron. You know, I'd come across it in, in various uh, folk songs or, or in folklore, this and this and that. But uh, uh-huh. it was only then that I was like, "Oh, okay." So the, they're actually making a distinction between iron and cold iron. I did, and I didn't know there was a right. more than one distinction. That's interesting about the bladed implements, and it wouldn't make sense. This is, you know, this is something that can cut you. Right, right, yeah. Which in a in, in sort of a you know in the sorcerer's context, you know, applies all sorts of things. Whether it's you know the severing of a usually the severing of some some sort of a bond, whether it's between a bond between two people or a bond between a, a person and a place or you know some 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 act of severing is, is involved in that a lot of the time how much of your smithing work is making you know ritual implements or charms or so forth i would say somewhere in the vicinity of 75 percent, probably and and the, the um, majority of it that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty uh, shocking. <laughs> yeah, that's really. I mean, that's that's, and it's. Uh, how much of that is commission work? Uh, uh probably fifty percent. 
1560. Okay. So you're doing a yeah. lot of this kind of work. Yeah, you wouldn't believe some of the requests <laughs> that I get. You know, it's, it's, it's really rewarding work. It's, it's really wonderful. And that, you know, it's a big expenditure of energy, but it's it's certainly worth it, you know, and getting some of the feedback from from people and, and you know, some of the the things that that work brings to people's lives is just, it's really, it's really remarkable. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And uh, for for uh, just to note, I, I have one of the... Uh, Trolls cross charms you make uh, hanging from my pack that, that I hike with regularly. So that's with me. I hope it serves. That's with me when I'm in the woods. So, and there, there, there's a controversial history I know with the with the trolls cross, but uh, sure, yeah, I, it is. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of stepped. It's one of those things that that yeah, it might not be ancient, but it's been sort of imbued with its own you know meaning and power through through its use. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it, it is loosely based on some, it's really, really similar to some older, you know, Viking era archaeological findings. But yeah, in terms of as a standalone, you know, it, it's more of a, a contemporary, I mean, it is a contemporary uh, sort of the name and the concept and the, you know, the design. But like you mentioned, you know, it's sort of taken on its own, own life as a, as a protective amulet, you know, in our era, which is which is pretty pretty rare for something to do that, you know, and and you know I'm impressed by, you know, the way that it's received by people and when they see it and they touch it, they hold it. It really does, you know. You can see it really it really digs at something inside of people, and you can see that reflected through the way they respond to them. So you know, it's it does hold the power, ancient or not, you know. Yeah. Design, yeah. anyways. And, and I think it's a, it's so. a excellent example of of something that. To connect you, it doesn't have to be necessarily handed down, you know, from from wherever. I mean, you can you can have a connection to this old folk belief, you know, whether you want to make it your religion or just connect it to to a kind of folklore that you carry with you. Uh, but it's interesting right. that you can have something that's you know basically a modern creation. Like you said, it was it was based on older designs or or certainly influenced by older designs. 
uh, that can still mm-hmm. connect you to that. I think I think it's an, uh, an excellent example of the new referencing the old. You know, we, we don't have to to give up the old uh, and, and to create something new from it. Right. No, it's a perfect example of that. Absolutely. And I just like the design too. It's it's, it's just uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It has a nice flow to it, and they're really really enjoyable to create too. I really I really like making them. So, are you observant of moon phases and all that as you're making them? Like like how detailed, it, or is that is if someone requests you know like like make this on the new moon? Otherwise, it's <laughs> it's just sort of a get it done kind well, of thing. You know, it it varies a bit. Um, yeah, I, I definitely do, you know, and, and, and again, you know, a lot of that is with the, with the commissioned work. Um, people are often exceptionally specific, you know, about days and times of manufacture and, you know, certain, certain substances being present in, in or near the forge, you know, at the time of, at the time of manufacture and stuff. So, yeah, all of those, all of those auspicious things are, are, are taken into consideration, particularly, um, with with you know custom work you know and uh, you know things uh, you know items that are that are dated or dedicated to more sort of um, you know martial purposes or Saturnian purposes you know all, all of these things are taken into consideration for you know days and times and things like that and that, and that does come up I mean folks are folks are often very specific which I appreciate and enjoy it's really feels like there's a need out there for this sort of thing. And, and, I, and that feeling has been confirmed by a lot of my clients and customers, you know, that, that this is something that people are actually really interested in beyond just mass manufactured common items that, that are widely available. You know, these are very special things for people and, it's, and it feels really good to be able to, to offer that to folks. You have also uh, studied a little bit in the the uh, Pennsylvania powwow tradition, yeah, I have. It's, it's been an area of interest to me for for some years. Uh, primarily, well, initially because of uh, you know this uh, shared uh, German American heritage on my mother's side, as well as um, this interest in you know in folk magic and and by strange coincidences and and connections and things, I was eventually fortunate enough to go to Pennsylvania and. Uh, um, I was trained in powwow by a woman in 2010, and um, so that that's become a part of my personal, you know, work, my personal path, and and been to some degree integrated into my worldview. Although living on the West Coast really puts a dent in that, <laughs> in my ability to you know fully assimilate that local culture because it is such a rich culture and it's such an involved um, way of life still today. You know, as you know, being a, a Pennsylvania native, you know it's a it's a very unique and beautiful thing, and so that's definitely been a part of of my world, and and I really feel really honored and blessed to, you know, met the folks that I had and had those opportunities. And again, we're going to bring you back on for the Powell Show, which is coming. I I just I have so much tape to edit for that. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, you have. You have a lot of really amazing material. That was, I know this. That was my mother-in-law. She she uh, she was doing a, a college project on it, and she interviewed tons of people. 
And once I get oh, wow. get get the stuff edited out, uh, you know, get get the uh, the treasure out of that. There's, I mean, it's all a treasure, but it's there's a lot of you know repeat stories about. I saw a Powell guy, and he you know he helped me cure my boil, you know, this way or or, or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, but there's some real gold in there that I that I have to uh, edit out. I just have to take the time to do it. But we'll have you back on for that. But Anyway, you said you had a, a little bit of uh, Pennsylvania Dutch lore that, that uh, related to iron. Sure. Yeah, you know, and there's, there's one piece in particular that I just, that's really fascinating and beautiful, and I know the person that related this information to me knows, knows from, you know, um, he'd inherited an entire collection of an old powwow gentleman's private items in, on articles and, and uh, diaries and things, you know, after he passed. But this particular formula is, is for, the, for the construction of a, a healing knife, a knife that was used for healing. And it takes, um, it's a pretty involved process, but it's, it's one of the more beautiful and, and fascinating uh, pieces of, of smithing lore that I've, that I've come into. And, and, and it, it really um, sort of exemplifies the level of, you know, of cultural um, and religious uh, you know, preservation that occurs um, with the Pennsylvania German population um, here in North America, you know, because there are so many parallels to this that are found, you know, over over Arabia. Um, but this particular um, formula is, is for an item called a three-crossed knife. And the three-crossed knife is... Um, it's a piece of iron, and it, it either has to be acquired free, you know, as, as a gift, or or has to be stolen. But you can't pay any money for it. But you take this piece of iron, and on New Year's Eve, between the hours of 11 and midnight, you and I'm assuming you'd have to have, you know, a farrier type setup for your blacksmithing equipment, you know, a portable forge and a, and a portable uh, anvil, and you go to a crossroads between 11 and midnight on New Year's Eve, and you take this iron and you heat it up, and you're only allowed to hit it three times per year. And so over the course of years, you forge a knife out of this piece of iron, and this knife, which ultimately is stamped with, with three crosses, you know, for the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, it's, it's stamped with the three crosses, but it's, it's supposed to be um, the supreme um, healing implement but it requires years and years to manufacture, you know, and, and as a, as a blacksmith who, who's also, you know, really familiar with healing work, that's just been such a fascinating and beautiful piece for me to consider. Like, uh, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of time oh, and yeah. a lot of consideration. And, and, uh, this, this gentleman's estate at one time did contain this, uh, three cross knife. And now it's, it's lost to history. We don't know where it's at. We know it wasn't the only case, of this occurring, but this this knife in particular that belonged to this gentleman um, was a sort of a joint project between this gentleman and his son over the over the course of about twenty years. Oh wow! Um, they'd worked on this, yeah, this knife. So so, and there are photographs of it, and so they're they're out there. And I've seen them; it's real, <laughs> and that's a that's a pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable piece of of folklore. Yeah, that's I've never heard that. Uh, that's that's incredible. Now, th- I, I was going to ask you, like, just to estimate how long do you think it would take? About twenty years, just with three hits per year. 
Yeah, it would it would take a long time. And I mean, if if you were to get the iron really hot, you got the iron really hot and uh, had very well delivered blows to this thing, you would have something that resembled a knife um, in maybe five years. You know, resembled a knife, but but to complete it, yeah, twenty years sounds about right. <laughs> wow. What an undertaking, yeah. and believe or not believe, but uh, the intent going into that is incredible. That's the, the dedication, you know, and and uh, and the intent going into a, that long a project going on that long. That's incredible. Yeah, and then that you know I I agree, and that's that's probably the most astounding part, you know, for me to consider is the the level of preparation and energy um, and intent that would be required for an item like that. You know, that's really where, you know, the magical component really comes in to, to an operation like that, you know? And plus you're combining the blacksmithing with the crossroads. I mean, that's, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, uh, yeah. And that auspicious time of the year, you know, um, New Year's Eve, right, right in that in the threshold of, you know, crossing over into a, a new year, you know, at that liminal hour between 11 and midnight, yep. you know, there's like all these elements um, of, of in-betweenness and liminality, you know, that are occurring there. So you were saying the, the forge itself is sort of noted as, as this liminal place, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that in some of the more rural parishes, um, you know, the British Isles in Scotland, it's, uh, there, you know, you see examples of it being a place that, that sort of substituted when when clergy were unavailable for for any manner of things, whether it was a blessing um, for the sick or the dying or the or the dead or a wedding. Um, a lot of weddings occurred over over anvils. You know, there's an old thing of being married over the anvil. Um, so these were more sort of off-the-radar marriages that were occurring, but it was really pop starting in about 1500, you know, it was really popular for folks to, for whatever reason, um, whether they were trying to keep their marriage private for a time or or it was, you know, unsanctioned by family or for whatever reason, these uh, weddings had to be kind of off-the-radar. They, they would occur in, in the forge, you know, over the anvil and could be married by a black. And similarly, you know, holy water, when, when unavailable, um, you know, a blacksmith quenching water was a good substitute for that. And it was this sort of place where, you know, kind of similar to a church, you know, there's some folklore that relates that anything, anything that's said in the forge that's spoken of in the smithy, you know, it stays there. It's, uh, it's sort of this holy place, you know, um, and it's enjoyed a lot of reverence. And again, I think that kind of goes back to that very, very ancient um, ideas of the smith as this sort of, you know, this interface between this world and the other, and this, this in-between character who who's kind of harnessed. You know, a lot of the stories talk about, you know, the Smith being denied entrance to hell and being denied entrance to heaven, you know, simultaneously. And just being, St. Peter's telling them, you know, oh, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> uh, the boss says you can't come here, so <laughs> you've got to go down and, and getting there and and him not being welcome there either. So this whole idea of him sort of being morally and ethically in a place, I don't want to say amnesty, but <laughs> some sort of in-between place that, that makes not only the anvil a sacred, you know, sacred relic, almost, almost an altar of sorts, 
you know, I've, I've seen lore folklore that relates, um, you know, a sick child being taken and placed, placed directly on the anvil and the hammer being passed over the child to relieve the sickness, you know, so all sorts of things, you know, that, that tell us that this places where people, you know, and again, particularly in rural areas where you cut out just at the end there. Um, but uh, I think we get the idea. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it it, it was. Uh, I think it's the the uh, the call, just cut out a little bit. So in general, the the, oh. the 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 forge just becomes you know this place of power and and, and liminality, or right. or maybe power because of the, the the liminal nature of it, which, right. which we see again and again. I mean, this when I started this uh, podcast, I thought I thought synchronicity. I thought that was going to be the drum that was going to be beat. Uh, more than any other, but this this idea of uh, liminal spaces has become m- more than anything else the, the sort of uh, feature that connects one thing to another to another to another. It's, it's very interesting, uh, and it's made me look at all of this stuff a little bit differently, in a good way. Right. Are you working on any other books right now? Yes, uh, slowly, <laughs> slowly but steadily. Um, working on a book about sort of relating some of the, the folklore and religious and ceremonial significance of, of iron and the role of the smith um, um, and historically in, in ancient religions and up through, you know, more more contemporary times. So um, that's, uh, that's a work in progress. I don't want to promise any dates or anything, but that's, that's definitely underway. Oh, that's so, awesome, though. It's a very, very uh, deep well. You know, we're going to do the two shows on it, and but I have a feeling we'll be we'll be going back to it, uh, just because there's there's so much to offer there. Great, yeah, it is it is a deep well, you know, and and the further I get into it, the further <laughs> the further I get into it. I mean, it's yeah. just this this bottomless place of of lore and and power, and and you know, one of the great things about it, you know, and and a friend of mine, I'm in a conversation has. And this this totally caught me off guard. You know, we were we were walking and talking about smithing actually, and um, he said, you know, and I and I don't recall where he where he heard the phrase, but he he referred to iron as being the democratic metal. And of course, I was a little taken aback because it's it's so often associated with the martial aspects, you know, death and war um, has a lot of these sorts of connotations around it. But as a democratic as a democratic metal, because uh, once it once it was, you know, the, the production of iron was industrialized, it became available to everybody, and it became available at a much more reasonable cost than some of the other non-ferrous metals like you know bronze and brass and copper, and so it really revolutionized human interaction with metals. Period. I mean, it was it was a big deal. It changed it it, it entirely change the course of human history, culture, religion, evolution, everything, you know, it's a big deal. And uh, so in thinking about it as a, this other element of it being this benevolent thing that brought so much good to the world um, with its, with its availability is really, it's really something to consider. Oh yeah. So we will look for that eventually. And uh, the best place to find, (laughs) find you is uh, at your Etsy or Sure, Etsy or or you know good old Instagram. Um, I'm on there as well. So just a name search for Cody Dickerson, and and you will find me. There's uh, there's a uh, quite a few pictures, including some 
some commissioned work, although most of the commissioned work doesn't get photographed, but some of it's on there too. So um, you can find me there or at the Etsy site, of course, if you're interested in and uh, the manufacture of any manner of things out of iron. I really do enjoy and welcome um, commissioned work. And I feel, you know, I feel really, feel really good about being able to offer that to folks um, and at, at a reasonable cost too, you know. Um, I think the idea here is just to, just to get these things out into the world and to make this service widely available so everybody can benefit again, you know, <laughs> by this, uh, the power of this, this democratic um, metal, you know. Absolutely. If you have any interest at all in uh, the folklore and and um, legend and and of the dead, which is you know incredible, pick up Cody's book, "The Language of the Corpse: The Power of the Cadaver in Germanic and Icelandic Sorcery," and that's from Three Hands Press, which you can get at threehandspress.com. I think it's also on Amazon, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I do. I excellent book. Believe I have a couple copies remaining at the at my Etsy shop too. So. Okay, all right. So they can get it. You can get it directly from Cody as well. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. It's very well written. Cody and I have had contact over the years. It just he's a uh, he's been a supporter of my music and and so forth for forever. I don't I don't I don't, I don't remember since when. <laughs> Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Uh, and I I I got your book and having known your name, you know, from someone I sent to you know, packages to, and you sent me the book and, and I was extremely impressed. I, I think your writing is fantastic. Uh, it's, it's excellently, oh, excellently gosh. written, <laughs> excellently you. researched. And, and, uh, it's, it's just a, it's a great book. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So we will talk to you again. We're going to, uh, schedule the powwow show and we're going to, uh, bring you back and, talk about the eternal hunter and many other things so uh you're, i'm going to uh i'm going to have you back on again cody but uh thanks for coming on. it would be a pleasure thank <laughs> you for coming on and, and we'll talk to you again thanks tim i really appreciate it and I'm, I'm really enjoying your work on this podcast and i look forward to to many more so thank you it's been a, a real pleasure speaking to you so oh you're welcome thanks One of my favorite pieces of folklore, which presents the blacksmith as a magician by name and by action, is the traditional song known as The Two Magicians. Stonebreath recorded two traditional songs for this episode, The Two Magicians and Blacksmith. We'll close the show with Blacksmith. Patrons have already gotten links to both the songs to download, and we'll probably combine these with another piece we're working on and release them as a separate Stonebreath mini-album down the road. The Two Magicians is known alternately by various other names, including the coal blacksmith. It tells the tale of two shapeshifters, a maiden and a blacksmith. The lady stands at her bower door, straight as a willow wand. By her came the coal blacksmith with a hammer in his hand. Lady by there's nowhere you can hide. This rusty smith will be your love for all your mates. 
dress my lady fair in your robes of red For the moon at the same time I'll gain your maiden hair Bide, lady, bide, there's nowhere you can hide This rusty smith will be your love for all your maiden
red clay and smothered her all around. She became a corpse, a corpse all in the ground. He became the cold red clay and smothered her all around. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, LLC. Music, books, podcasts, and more, darkhollerarts.com. Intro and background music by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. Our reader this episode was Serata, who also sings and plays music with me in Stonebreath. Oh
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.